Let me give you a little riddle I heard once. What do John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh. Well, it's very easy. They have the same middle name. John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh. I'm going to ask you another question about having things in common. What does a philosopher have in common with a traveling sales lady, a former fortune teller, and a jailer? What do they all have in common? Well, I'll tell you what they all have in common. They were all members of the church at Philippi. And they had in common a fellowship in the Lord. You know what the word fellowship means? It means to have something in common. To have something in common. Large portions of the New Testament were written in ancient Greek. This is the Greek word koinonia, and it means to have in common. Just as John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have the same middle name in common. You're going to find out that in a much more intrinsically beautiful way, these people at Philippi had some things in common. The Apostle Paul, who was a philosopher and a teacher and a world traveler, a woman named Lydia, traveling sales lady originally from Thyatira, seller of purple clothing known to be the color of important people such as royalty, a fortune teller who got saved, a Philippian jailer who got saved from the wrath of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and all of them have in common what we have in common today, brothers and sisters, and that is Jesus. Amen. Why are we here today? We're not just here to sing songs and to hear a talk. We're here because of one person, and his name is Jesus. And the Jesus in me loves the Jesus in you, and the Jesus in you loves the Jesus in me, and together we love Jesus. And folks, it is Jesus that makes this crowd a congregation. Did you know that? It is Jesus that makes this crowd a congregation. It is the fellowship, the oneness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we come together in this fellowship, we are the church. Amen. We are the church. We are the family of God. And I want to say without stutter, stammer, apology, hesitation, or equivocation, this, that beyond any shout of any doubt or peradventure, that the grandest organization upon the face of this earth is the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is. It is. And don't be so foolish or so ridiculous as to badmouth the bride of Christ. Now, I'm not talking about the faults. I'm not talking about the uh, failures and the foibles of the church. We have those hypocrites. Ever met one before? Let's ask Pastor Turner. Have you... Uh, Ever met a hypocrite in any church ever in your life? Any, any church? Sure. sure. Okay. <laughs> All right. One of the 12 disciples was a hypocrite. Uh, let me tell you something, folks. No ship of Zion is going to sink because of a few bad sailors. I bought a dozen eggs a while back, and one of them was a hypocrite. One out of 12 ain't bad. One of the 12 disciples was a hypocrite. Some lawyers are schmucks. Uh, some doctors are quacks. Some money is counterfeit. And yet we still go to lawyers, and we still go to doctors, and you've still not thrown away all your money. Why? Because it is the hypocrite that demonstrates the validity of the real. People don't counterfeit bubblegum wrappers. They counterfeit $50 bills, something with lasting value. 
Every counterfeit Christian only speaks to the worthwhileness and to the validity, the realness of the genuine. But we have to understand what the church is. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. I'm speaking of the institution. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. The family of God, those who are born again, those who are heaven-bound and heaven-born. Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Never forget that. He loves his bride. And we speak of the church, which is really the family of God. We sing it. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. But let's go to our text. John 13, 34. I'll read verse 34. John 13, 34. The word of God reads, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. Look at verse 35. In fact, let's all read this together. We're going to read verse 35 together. Chapter 13, verse 35, the Gospel of John. 1335, ready, begin. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one toward another. Notice the conditional word if, because if we do not have the love of Christ, well, it's the use of being called the family of God. Uh, If we don't love, then this lost world will not know. How will they escape the damnation of hell if they do not know? Two chapters later, John 15, verse 5. Without me, ye can do nothing. By this, by this. Not by our sideburns or the color of our collared shirts. Not by our dresses and tresses and musical preferences, but by this. This is Christ's distinguishing mark. This is his emphasis. Go to 1 Corinthians 13, and we'll park there for the remainder of our time, most of the remainder of our time together. And please allow some time to set the background of our message here. This is the love chapter, commonly known as the love chapter, agape love. We'll speak on that a little bit later. Let's live in this chapter, the love chapter. Let's live in this chapter a while, shall we? In fact, let's live here our whole lives. A prevailing theme of the New Testament is that Christ is better. Christ is superior to sin, to vanity, to all forms of self-interest. In fact, in other words, the message is stop looking to man. Stop looking to man to grant you a purposeful life. Look to God. Look to God. And the book of 1 Corinthians details the spanking of the saints. They were doing everything wrong, but the Holy Spirit was going to set them straight. They were arrogant, doing right things with the wrong motives. They were involved in debauchery of the worst kind, and yet, uh, God had mercy on them. Twice, he wrote them two letters, First and Second Corinthians. It was like an ancient Las Vegas. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Wicked, wicked city. And keep that in mind as Paul sharply rebukes God's people. They were taking a lot from society. And I see that in my own life many days. And possibly in your life too. Taking too much from society and bringing it into the church. The love of God is superior to humanity's best efforts. If his charity is demonstrated through our lives, then people will know that we are his disciples. We can be a light in this dark world and tell everyone that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven because he is. How tragic it is to lose your health. How tragic it is to lose your wealth. But how much more tragic to lose your soul. 
What shall it profit a man? If he shall gain the whole world, but lose his own soul. You know, Christ provided an answer to the problem of evil. Why does evil exist? He provided an answer to that problem 2,000 years ago when he bled and died on an old rugged cross to pay the price for my sin. My sin put him on that cross. And our world, this world, is corrupted by sin. It's less pretty than it once was and is not as pretty (laughs) as it one day will be. Praise the Lord for that. Our enemy has corrupted this world, but God will not let the devil get away with it. Sin is the problem, hell is the consequence, but Jesus is the answer. But how, are, how is a lost world supposed to know that? How are they going to know? How are they going to understand that truth if his disciples can't even love each other? Love is not a feeling. Love is a person. For God is love. The issue that is endemic in our church culture is that we have Christians who live without Christ, and believers who do not believe. We can't love if we don't even believe that victory over sin is possible. Are you hungry for fellowship, for friendship, for being around friends, being gregarious by nature? Is that, that's what humans are? Are you hungry for fellowship? Everybody is. Do you know that one of the deepest needs of this world is to love and to be loved? Right. To have true oneness and to have true fellowship. That's the reason the Word of God never teaches Lone Ranger Christianity. (laughs) Ephesians 3 says, Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. I'm getting to 1 Corinthians. Hang on. I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might by His Spirit in the inner man. That God, uh, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in what? In love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. This love is a brotherly love in the Lord. Christ allows us to love each other wholly. Now, my siblings and I used to get in fights all the time. All the time. No matter how petty they were, no matter how inconsequential they were, and especially if it was a pointless fight, without fail, my dad is in this room. My dad would quote Hebrews 13.1. Hebrews 13.1. Every time he said, Let brotherly love continue. You know what I'm talking about? I see you rubbing your nose there. That's what he said. Either in jest or just to get our attention, usually to make us laugh, you know, while, while we were squabbling, and to diffuse the situation, but still good, amen? <laughs> Fighting over the last cookie. Let brotherly love continue. Uh, who gets to, whose turn is it on the PlayStation? <laughs> Let brotherly love continue. Notice there's one indispensable truth. Love, love that must be guarded by everyone in this room. What I'm saying tonight applies to every single person, including me. And if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, he must also be your Lord, as he so desires to be. If you are a born-again believer, if you're a child of the King, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you must adhere to the greatest commandment. 
I must adhere to the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And I promised I would get to 1 Corinthians, but while you stare at 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to stop by 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. I'm going to start reading when I get there for sake of time. We know, verse 1, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, that's love, edifieth. Now if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing. Yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Everyone knows something about something. After 21 years of pastoral ministry, I would assume that Pastor Turner knows a little bit about being the under-shepherd of a church. He's not here, so I can say this. I believe Pastor uh, Nathan is the second coming of MacGyver. If it's broken, good night in the morning, he can fix it. Mrs. Turner knows about child care. She's a great teacher for Patch Club. Uh, she's a kind, nurturing soul. I hope you pray for our pastor and his family. Timothy is a tech wizard. I know magic is a sin, but it's just an expression. Brother Tejada has the patience of a surgeon at his job as he works with special needs clients. At least he's supposed to have patience, right? Yeah? Brother, Brother Dwayne welds. I don't know what a weld is. I'm teasing. And uh, Leo and Max can beat everyone in this room at Clash Royale. But here's the point. Knowing stuff ought not to make us arrogant. Back in March of last year, I had a text message conversation with a close relative of mine who has abandoned God entirely. I thought I was answering his questions. Watch. Excuse me. He thought I was out to get him. He thought I was out to get him. And why? Number one, big mistake. Never have an important discussion by text message where eternal souls hang in the balance. I say that sort of facetiously, but I'm also quite serious with that. I was not reading the room or the tone or the text. <laughs> Number two, more importantly, he couldn't sense the love of God in my words. An answer for every discussion point. I won most every argument, but I lost his heart. And you know what he needed at that moment? He didn't need my arms around his, ne- my, my arms around his neck or my, my hands around his neck. He needed my arm around his shoulder. He needed to be guided. He needed to be encouraged. He needed to be edified. I had the right position, but the wrong disposition. There was nothing sweet about my words. My speech was not with grace. And that day, in some ways, I lost a family member. And it's going to be a long time for that relationship to heal. I, expect, I accept full responsibility, and it hurts. I've cried myself to sleep so many nights. I've woken up in the morning and feel, feeling like there's blood on my hands. That bridge is burnt, but God is still on the throne. God can still fix things where man undermines and ransacks and exploits and even unintentionally destroys. God can still build. He can make a way. And I'm still praying that the Lord will work in this relative's heart to bring him back to himself. This is why I need the love of God. This is actually why I can't preach this message. Well, I should probably just walk off and take a seat because I, I really am not capable, especially in my flesh. Apart from Jesus, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Without Jesus, my knee-jerk reaction to confrontation is to get angry, visceral, medieval, and everyone responds to adversity differently. Some of us bottle it up and others explode. I guess I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> However, there's no one too important for God, no sinner too dirty that he cannot clean. 
I told you to be in 1 Corinthians 13. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at the final verses of the chapter uh, previous. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 29. 1 Corinthians 12, 29. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts. And yet I show unto you a more excellent way. Many years ago, the theme of Anchor Baptist Church was a more excellent way. And that phrase has stuck in my mind all the way until today. And if you wanted to put a title to this message, it would be a more excellent way. And what is the more excellent way? It is charity. A superior way to uh, being a great teacher, being a miracle worker. What we ought rather to be is one that exemplifies and shows forth the love of Christ. In the transient world, what really lasts? Two forever things. The word of God and the souls of men. The word of God and the souls of men, and the two must be brought together. No game, no car, no house, no boat, no device, no scenic vacation, no plan or possession will last forever. The word of God and the souls of men. There are four Greek words. Storge refers to a type of love. All of these Greek words referring to love. Storge refers to a familial kind of love. Mother, son, father, daughter kind of love. Eros refers to an erotic, sensual kind of love. Phileo, the third kind of love, refers to a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Let me uh, bring that to your mind. And finally, agape love. Unconditional love, love without any strings attached. And I'm convinced that the Holy Spirit had to invent a word to describe his unique love, agape. Agape equals charity. Charity, unconditional love. And finally, we're at our text. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and, ha- and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. It doesn't do a disservice to the passage at all if we're to exchange the word charity for the word Christ. Notice, without Christ. There is no charity. Christ and his charity are absolutely necessary. Look at this together. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not Christ, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. I'm just making noise. And though I understand all mysteries, all knowledge, have all faith, if I have not Christ, I am nothing. Though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, if I give my body to be burned and I don't have Christ, it profiteth me nothing. Christ suffereth long. Christ is kind. Christ envieth not. Christ vaunteth not himself. Christ is not puffed up. Christ doth not behave himself unseemly. Seeketh not his own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Christ rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Jesus never faileth in verse 8. Christ never faileth. Charity never 
faileth. And if you have a pen or if you have a phone, I would encourage you to maybe write some of these thoughts down. We're going to notice four paths that lead to nowhere. Four paths that lead to nowhere without Christ, without charity. Maybe a help and a blessing to you this evening to do that. First of all, firstly, number one, to speak without charity is nothing. Speaking without charity is nothing. Now, last summer, summer 2021, I served as an arm of outreach at the Cleveland Baptist Church of Ohio. A former member of that church by the name of Dr. David Gibbs is still ministering today as a lawyer. Uh, He's quite skilled in that. Uh, sort of repeals and legal matters and consultation. He has a deep, resonant voice that can turn microphones into gold bars. And uh, if you know anything about him, I've literally heard other, other preachers describe this man with flowery description. They would say, Dr. Gibbs. Uh, I'm watching as the words fall from his mouth like golden pollen from the stems of shaking lilies. I, just a low, low voice. And he could really tell a story. There have been times when he could tell a story and mentioned the back doors of an auditorium swinging open, and everyone would look behind themselves to see if they really had. But if I had the, uh, the oratory skills of uh, David Gibbs, <laughs> he's a humble guy, he doesn't brag about it. <laughs> if, I, if I could speak like Brother Gibbs, if you could speak like uh, Dr. David Gibbs, if you could speak different languages, if you could speak celestial tongues like angels, if you didn't have Christ, If you didn't have charity, it amounts to nothing. To be skilled at talking is not love. It's not charity. Number two, to have knowledge without charity is nothing. We're going to breeze right through this. To have knowledge without charity is nothing. No one knows it all. No one knows it all. Not even bloggers know it all. No podcast, no YouTuber, no TV news anchor, or interesting personality on TikTok or Instagram has it all figured out. Did you know that? <laughs> and parenthetically, we get much of our knowledge from entertainment. May I implore you, guard your home. Guard your heart. Entertainment is the devil's substitute for joy. How can we pull down the strongholds of Satan if we don't even have the strength to turn off our phones? Now back to this as it relates to knowledge. Really, we're all st- snatching at straws in this area. We're all lacking. Only God knows all. And as I've mentioned before, truly it doesn't matter what any of us think. All that matters is what God knows. Our preferences, our whims, our opinion, all must bow before his wisdom. Number three, number three, to have all faith without charity is nothing. Verse number two, and though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. To have, all chase, uh, to have all faith without charity is nothing. Belief without the right motives placed in the wrong source accomplishes nothing, profits nothing, and amounts to nothing. Mustard seed faith moves mountains. Mustard seeds are small. They're like sand in the grain of your hand, and you could blow it away. But it is not the duration of your faith or the strength of your faith that counts. It is the object of your faith. Jesus Christ is the author and finisher of our faith. And fourthly, last of all, to bestow without charity is nothing. To bestow without charity is nothing. 
generosity and sacrifice without Jesus Christ, without love, not even martyrdom can do it. Verse 3, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. If words sound like charity and actions look like charity, then sacrifice seems the most like charity, wouldn't you say? Without charity, all of these are worthless in the eyes of God. At speaking without charity, knowledge without charity, faith without charity, generosity without charity is nothing. Now, some final admonition here. Dial in on verse number 13. Chapter 13, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, but the greatest of these is charity. Faith is temporary. Today we walk by faith, not by sight. But as the hymn writer wrote, one day my faith shall be sight. When you live by faith, you live above sea level. You live above the level of what you can see. The Bible teaches that believing is seeing. Faith is not stepping into the dark. It is stepping into the light of God's word. It's not stepping into the dark. It's stepping into the light of God's word. Blessed are they that have not seen. Faith is confidence that goes beyond emotion. Faith should not be fettered by feelings, but faith is temporary. For faith to exist, it must have an object. And one day our faith will be sight. We will see Jesus Christ face to face. And that's a humbling thing to consider, that we will see God himself right in the whites of his eyes. And he will know everything about us, us and our naked soul, standing before the creator of the universe. And he's going to know every thought, every deed, whether or not it was honoring and glorifying to him. How about hope? Hope is the parent of faith. But hope is temporary. Our hope will one day be substance. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, he is the author and finisher of our faith, looking unto Jesus. Without Christ, life is an endless hope. Or a, without Christ, is, it is a hopeless end. With Christ, life is an endless hope. But without Christ, it is a hopeless end. Even good things don't last forever. And that climactic verse, verse 13, where we find this trio, faith, hope, and charity, it's found ten times in the New Testament. Now understand, people need faith. People need hope. But this trio is connected to Jesus. Let's read it together. 13, 13. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Ready, begin. And now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three, the greatest of these is charity. Our faith is in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. And our charity is Jesus because Jesus is God and God is love. And his love is charity. And what, what all this means is that people need Jesus. I hope your faith is growing every day. And by the way, if, you, if you're not sure that your faith is in Jesus Christ, before you leave this place, you need to know that. You need a faith that lasts. When you grow old and you die and step out of this life into the next, you need to know for sure that Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. And when faith becomes sight, you need to know Jesus Christ. And you may say, uh, my faith is weak, Kevin. I, I, I don't have much faith. But dear friend, the strength is not the strength of your faith. 
It's not the duration of your faith. It is the object of your faith. I'm in the hand of Jesus, and he's seated on the Father's hand, and no man can pluck me out of the hand of my Father. Are you, too, seated with Christ in heavenly places? If your faith is in the truth and your intellectual assent of the gospel has become heart affirmation and dependence on the Lord's power alone, your faith may be shaken, but the object of your faith shall never be shaken because God never changes. We serve in an ever-changing world an unchanging Christ. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. I'm not merely talking about a positive attitude. You can give yourself a pep talk and still have a bad day where ter- terrible circumstances take place. But we need something that we can build a life upon, a foundation built upon God. Now, there's a difference between optimism and faith. And uh, I'm naturally melancholy by temperament sometimes in my flesh, pessimistic. But I've read the end of the book, and by faith I accept the fact that God has already won and will continue to win. How many of you are optimists? You would be willing by admission to raise your hand. How many of you guys are optimists? Okay, I see a few, a few, a few, now a lot more. Great. How many of you are pessimists? Wow, I see some reluctant people. How many of you are afraid to vote? <laughs> now, if I really want to find out, I would ask those who, who live with you because uh, uh, they know. So I become optimistic by accepting reality and believing facts. Optimism, grounded in Scripture, is a byproduct of faith. Here's the difference. Optimism simply hopes that the situation will get better. Faith depends on the God who is always good. Amen. Without explanation, or when rules without explanation are preached more than God's holiness, his truth, his love, and sin and its consequences, when rules without explanation are preached more than God's love for us, it breeds angry children that become resentful adults. I speak by experience. You are looking at a prodigal right now. Mark it down. The children in this room will attempt to abandon the truth if we do not clearly model and explain what our gentle, strong, and loving God requires from everyone, from all of us. A depth and breadth of love deeper and stronger than we have ever known. His love in Scripture is the love that God has for us. Love that excels all understanding, the greatest ever known. He saved love for last in this chapter, not because it is least, but because it is greatest. And if it were not in the Bible, I wouldn't say that. We overstate everything now. This is the greatest athlete of all time. This is the best food I've ever tasted. This is the coolest meme I've ever seen. Uh, It's amazing. But this truly is the greatest thing in the world. Dear friend, God doesn't love you because you're a good boy or because you're a good girl. He doesn't love you because you're good. He loves you because he is good. I'll tell you why he loves you. Because he cannot help himself. He didn't just give himself for you. He gave himself to you. Richard Sibis said, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. The greatest thing in the world is the love of God. This is not a speech I made up for you. This is the truth of the word of God. 
He can't stop loving you. That's just who he is. God's love is where saints will live forever. What we need, you know what this city needs, is a fresh glimpse of the love of God. Violence is on the rise. Things are getting harder. Have you noticed? <laughs> People are getting harsher. And that's, that's kind of just what sin does to a man. He has to claw and fight and attack his way through life. When life gets really hard and they don't have God, this is the natural response. But if your idea of God is a bully with a club over your head, ready to squash you like a bug, you have it all wrong. And if he was going to squash you like a bug, he would have done that years ago. Our God is merciful. Our God is gracious. And that bully's picture is not our God. Jeremiah wrote with tears in his eyes, The Lord hath appeared of old unto me. Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. That's just who, who he is. And if I ever find myself getting cold and indifferent, and I forget this love, and I need that first love stirred up within me once again, all I needs do is go back to the cross and watch again Jesus die. Dr. David Wilson was one of the last of the fundamentalists at Princeton University. He knew 47 languages and dialects, and he believed that Scripture was the Word of God, that Jesus Christ is virgin-born, that his blood was spilled to atone for the sins of man, that he was God in the flesh. Nowadays, professors at Princeton do not believe that. He knew a Hebrew version of the New Testament, and he could quote it without missing a syllable. This was many years ago. And he was asked on his last day of class, around 82 years of age at the time, <laughs> Dr. Wilson, after studying the Bible for all these years, what is the greatest thing you've learned in the Bible after all these years? You know what he said? The, the tears rolled into his cheeks like water racing through a canal. He said, the greatest thing I've ever learned after all these years is that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Praise the Lord for that. I love that thought there, and I'm grateful. If you'll just let me find my place here, I'll continue. God, I love technology. It, it's, it's always giving us, uh, not problems, but issues and uh, situations that we, that we uh, get through. <laughs> I like what Dr. Lee said. He said, Jesus traded the glory of heaven to the gory earth, the hallelujahs of heaven <laughs> for the hisses of earth, the comforts of heaven to the curses of earth, the rejoicing of heaven to the jeers of earth, heaven's bread for earth's hunger, heaven's joys for earth's sorrow. He was coming from the glory place to this glory place, not to just be an example, although he was an example, not just to touch blinded eyes and make them see and crippled legs to make them walk, mute mouths to make them talk, deaf ears to make them hear. He came to die on an old rugged cross for you and for me. That's why he came. He wasn't trying to get away from that. Travel with me to the Garden of Gethsemane. Come with me. We're going to take a trip. Jesus is kneeling. He's praying. He says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If there's any other way, I'm ready to die. But to become Kevin Similia, to become Ben Turner, for he, that's the Father, hath made him, that's the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, 
that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He always knew the will of the Lord because He was the Lord. And if you'd been the only person that ever lived, Jesus Christ would have loved you enough to die just for you. Again, he went away and prayed and spake the same words. He finds his disciples sleeping until the third time he says, Sleep on. Rise up, let us go. He that betrayeth me is at hand. While he yet spake, cometh Judas, the betrayer, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and stays from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He looks yonder, and here they come with shackles to bind the hands that bound the hands of Orion, that made the bands of Orion. Here they come with torches to take away the light of the world. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Judas Iscariot comes to betray him with a kiss. And his response to all of this is, I am he. And you got to love the integrity of the authorized version and their translators. They put the he in italics to denote words supplied for clarification of meaning. He gave station identification, who you're looking for. <laughs> so he told them who he was. He says, I am. He says, I am. And that's why six or 1,200 of them fell flat on their face. And Peter wasn't afraid to cut off Malchus's ear because he knew that if they gave him trouble, Jesus would just have to give him another, I am. And they'd be decked down on the ground. Hey, we're not of the hyper-dispensational mode that Jesus Christ only came for Israel. And because they didn't accept him, he'll go ahead and die for the world now. No, we believe that this was his plan from the beginning of time, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. God anticipated man's need. Politicians anticipate man's need with tax breaks and with welfare but only God fully anticipated man's need. He doesn't need a new deal or a new society. He desires a new heart, and a new heart only comes through forgiveness of sins. And the only way to get there is through the cross of Jesus Christ. The same way you're saved is the same way you're sanctified. The same way you get to God is the same way you grow up in him, by grace, through faith in Christ and what he's already done. Do you know why we have a wonderful future? I'll tell you why. Because we've had a wonderful start Jesus began it, and he's going to finish it. You ask, how much does Jesus love me? Look at the cross. Come on, look at him. I love you this much. That's what he said. He died on the tree for you and me. It was midnight in the middle of the day as God the Father turns his back on his son. The lights go out, and as a cry pierces the darkness, Christ cries from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Let me tell you why he was forsaken. He was forsaken so that you could be received. He took your death so that you could take his life. He took your hell so you you could take his heaven. He took your sin so that you could take his righteousness. Before this, he always called his father, father, but now he called him God. The reason why he called him God is so that we one day might be able to call him father. He has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Love is the greatest of these, faith, hope, and charity. It is a more excellent way because it allows the other to exist. You can only trust someone that loves you. You can only hope in someone that loves you. Faith is temporary. Hope is temporary, but there's no end to love. When we get to heaven, the greatest adventure of all is just beginning deeper into the love of God 
when you did not deserve it, when I didn't deserve it, God loved us anyways. Not after you cleaned up your act and started going to church. He loves you where you are, despite who you are. And too much to let you stay there. I'm so glad he loves us. We're all under construction. Look around this room. Look around. Look around. We're not so hot. We don't even look so good. Only one out of every three people is either handsome or beautiful. Okay? And if if it's not them, it's you. And so you did great. Glad you're here. And uh, folks, we're under construction. (laughs) He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. I'm heaven bound. I'm heaven born. And all hell can't stop it. Because Jesus is worthy. I'm not worthy, but he is. He is my joy. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. All that's good and perfect comes from you. You're the heart of my contentment. Oh, for all I do. Jesus, you're the center of my joy. I hope he is. Our lives will change forever if we know that God loves us. Amen. See, when you get to the end, some things just don't matter. And some things do. Faith does. Hope does. Charity does. Because Christ does. 